0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the limited validity of authorial intent. mentioned many times before that i do not really like dealing with hot off the press current events i feel that inappropriate conversations is better when there's a bit of perspective and it's hard to get perspective on well literally a same day type conversation but today in the news reported by cnn and others iranian president mahmoud Ahmadinejad has made a statement publicly regarding the controversial film that i'm going to deal with here in just a minute that's uh, really created a great deal of havoc across the Middle East and the rest of the world. But he also took the opportunity to say that he felt that homosexuality was very ugly. And he's using words that in many ways are quite similar to the same type of language used recently by American televangelist Joel Osteen. That has led to a conversation on Twitter that just happened today. I wasn't looking for trouble, but seemingly I found it because I was one of the people who made the observation that I didn't see a heck of a lot of difference between the philosophy or the you know political outlook on the question of homosexuality and homosexual rights between the Iranian president and a lot of the current political candidates out there particularly on the right side of the political spectrum there really isn't you know mathematically any difference between the point of view of say Rick Santorum and Ahmadinejad both of them feel that homosexuality is morally wrong deeply offensive and must be banned and there may be a slight difference in what they would do from there but describing homosexuality as ugly and sinful on the one side of the world in the middle eastern side of the world and describing homosexuality as ugly and sinful on the western side in america well that's the same exact concept what you do with it is a slightly different matter and that's where a lot of the conversation sort of kicked in today Because I wasn't the only one online saying, hey, you know what, somebody made an observation that, you know, is the president of Iran trying to position himself for a U.S. presidential run. You know, maybe taking on a few more elements of the GOP party platform could be the beginnings of a 2016 run for president. And that got an angry response from somebody who refers to himself as a Fox News correspondent. And, you know, my exchange or my end of those exchange was basically to say that it's important that we not confuse policy with philosophy, that it is valid to say that the policy in Iran of putting homosexuals to death is different from the policies put forth in the Republican platform. But the Republican platform's really genuinely very vague about what its solutions are to the problem. The Republican platform, in fact, one of the defining things about the Republican party right now in the year 2012, is how many things are defined by what they're not. I'm not hearing a good alternative to what Barack Obama has done with health care. I don't believe that what Barack Obama has done with health care is even remotely sufficient. I believe that key things have been missed, that there's a certain supply side element here that has not at all been addressed properly. But the answer isn't let's go back to the way things used to be. In other words, on the question of health care, the Republicans have staked a very firm position on what they're not. They're not in favor of of Obamacare. Well, what are you in favor of? And the answer simply can't be, let's go back to the good old days, which got us into the health mess that we're in today. Let's not go back to the good old days in the banking industry either, which, again, quite a mess that we've got ourselves in today. So I put out a response that basically said, hey, you know, what? we've got to be very careful not to confuse philosophy with policy, because this philosophy expressed from Iran today is identical to the Baptist preacher in North Carolina who said that all of the homosexuals should be rounded up and put into concentration camps and starved to death. Well, I got an answer from that, and the answer was essentially that my point of view was silly. How? I replied. These pastors are suggesting that we round up the gays for extermination are coming from U.S. Christian pulpits, from Southern Baptist pulpits in particular. They appear to find gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people just as ugly— as you know, the Iranian president does. So, in a back and forth exchange, you know, someone volleyed over an answer that, well, you know, we're taking our eyes off the ball here. You know, you can't focus on this issue and ignore genocide in Rwanda. I said, yes, but you know what? When it comes to Africa, you've got this little matter of, of Uganda, where U.S. activists have been purporting a law that would execute people for being homosexual in that country. And some of them have been so forthright as to say that this is essentially a test case. If, if Uganda can successfully implement this law, then we'll do our best to bring it into Europe and across to America, that this is the, the way forward viewed by some people in the religious right. So the answer back to that was, you know what? Christians have done more to help people in Africa and to provide aid for Africa than anyone else in the world. To which I said, I will grant you that, but those same Christians must speak up rebuking people on their own side of the political spectrum for inciting violence. Why won't you grant me that? You know what? It took an awfully long time to even get agreement that it is wrong for Christians to try to incite violence against anybody else. I had to go through several exchanges with this individual back and forth over whether there were too many people in the country for politicians to address the issue of Christian political leaders trying to incite violence to suggest that they put together this sort of round-up-the-gays-and-put-them-to-death sort of law. All I finally got, when it was all said and done, and again, what I consider to be something of a shocking exchange, was this concession, that there's a lot of issues out there, a lot of whack-a-mole games to be played, but I don't have a problem if somebody else wants to speak negatively or harshly about Christians trying to put people to death. He just wasn't willing to make the statement himself. In fact, I only got that concession after I said, hey, I'm not asking you to stand up on the soapbox and make the claim. I'm just asking you to say, probably a good idea. I never got good idea. I just got, you know what? I guess I wouldn't have a problem if that's what people do. This is the state of Christianity today. And it has something to do with the environment. Our notion of who our friends are and who our enemies are. And whatever Jesus had to say has really nothing to do with the ultimate decision that's going to drive how we react to the world. And it really cuts to the chase of a film made under extremely fraudulent circumstances where the maker of this movie, uh, this short YouTube movie, for want of a better word, gave a phony script to his actors, redubbed their voices after the scenes were shot, turned something that they thought was a cheesy B-movie science fiction into a religious diatribe, and a religious diatribe that, that, let's not mince words, full of hate. I want to read quickly, just to set the stage on this, on the question of authorial intent, because I want to deal with the issue of whether or not the author has the final say, or whether or not the reader has the final say on what something means, now, I've spoken publicly before on this issue, and I've written even a short story, a sort of a polemical short story, from the perspective of my belief that the reader has the final say. As an author, as an author myself, you put something out there and you take your chances on whether people interpret it the way you had in mind. And sometimes even subconsciously, the ideas that you put in play don't don't really click. You don't really realize what other people are going to read into it until you actually get their response. But first – I want to deal with a bookend kind of an approach on opponents to this idea. And I'm going to use very famous opponents by quoting from a film criticism book called Nine American Film Critics by Edward Murray. And in his appendix, he has quoted famous filmmakers and their perspective on film critics. Orson Welles saying the following, you highbrows writing on movies are nuts. In order to write about movies, you must first make them. The idea being that you really shouldn't have anything to say about the great American novel unless you're the writer of the great American novel. Interesting. Akira Kurosawa, easily the most famous and in my opinion, one of the greatest directors from Japan, says, I never read a critic who didn't put false meanings into my work. And you can almost understand his frustration. But the question, of course, is where's the truth and where's to the falseness of this notion of putting meanings into the work? Did the reader misinterpret what the writer wrote? Or did the reader find something in the writing that the character perhaps had more to do with than the author per se? The last one I want to deal with is actually a humorous anecdote where John Simon, film critic for the National Review many years ago, takes a uh, humorous stab at the movie Sorcerer. Here's John Simon. In the story behind The Exorcist, Travers and Fife Wright, William Friedkin says, I have a theory of film criticism. If a film is liked by the critics and the audience, it's probably a great film. If the film is liked by the audience but not by the critics, it's still probably a great film. If a film is liked only by the critics, it is a piece of shit. I regret not being able to give you an exact evaluation of the movie Sorcerer, because Friedkin's otherwise comprehensive schema fails to provide the juste for the film disliked equally by audience and critic. So John Simon finding a coy way to refer to the movie sorcerer as a piece of shit and to attack Friedkin for this idea that no one's allowed to have an opinion of my movie except for me and perhaps an audience full of people who are responding to the built-in cues that I have carefully crafted and provided. Now, this notion of a film director predetermining his audience response probably should resonate with people who have seen enough, and perhaps even admired enough, the movies of Steven Spielberg and Brian De Palma. These are people who condition and build in the response to their films. But in some ways, Orson Welles himself is speaking in a very negative and dismissive way toward his audience, as if to say that even the crowd who comes to see his film, people whose approval that Friedkin so you know desperately craved in his writings, in his quotation. It yeah, doesn't seem to have much respect for them either. After all, even if they love his movie and think it's brilliant, well, they've never made a film themselves. So what does their point of view count? That is one side of the coin on the idea of authorial intent. My point of view, slightly different. I believe that authorial intent from an art perspective is wrong. I don't believe that an artist gets to tell his audience the only way they're allowed to interpret his work. I think that's a mistake because even though... What the author is trying to convey, whether in the text or in the subtext, may be clear and may be valid. There may be many other interpretations that are equally clear and equally valid. And everyone who's a reader, you know, brings their own credibility to the work. On the other hand, authorial intent from the perspective of what the author is trying to accomplish, well, that is a very relevant thing to be looking at. In other words, I'm giving the author no ability whatsoever to dictate that a negative review doesn't count, because I'm the author and I have the final say on how my work is to be interpreted, but I am ultimately giving the author the final responsibility for the consequences of their work. What if the, quote, art, unquote, that they've created is intended to do nothing more than incite violence, give money to hate groups, or start a war? I would suggest that some of the recent more incendiary filmmaking in the news today was devised for simply those purposes. If not to start a war, at the very least to incite violence, and there's something fundamentally wrong with that. This is not the same thing as having a different vision on sociology or psychological criticism of a film or of a book. In this case, I'm not really interested in the interpretation of the person's art. What I'm interested in is what they intend to do with that art and this ties in in other ways back to the whole concept with chick-fil-a i'm not the least bit worried and don't lose a minute sleep over chick-fil-a's free speech rights because that really is not my issue with the fast food chain my issue is how are they using their money what what is my money as a customer going to be turning into and if it's going to be turning into hate then i have a right to object dan carlin It's hardcore history. Give you an example of what I mean. Ever fought an elephant in hand-to-hand combat? You, your relatives, your neighbors, some acquaintances get together on your street. I'll give you some swords and some spears and some javelins, and I'm going to put an elephant on the other side of the street with one guy on top of him, and I'm going to tell you to go get each other. Put that mental image in your mind for a second. The events. The war between Nazi Germany and the Communist Soviet Union. If you took that out of the greater scheme of World War II and just looked at it by itself, it would be the largest war in human history. The drama. And what I said to my friend who asked me, what I thought an Apache raid, the aftermath of an Apache raid, was like. I said, imagine you were one of the police officers that was the first to show up at one of the Manson murder scenes. The deep questions. What's that person thinking about? What's on that person's mind? What do you think about one minute into a crucifixion? Get more hardcore history at dancarlin.com. I want to quote from an article on a website called The blog, republished by Huffington Post, the author is Sahara Aziz, an associate professor of law at Texas Wesleyan University School of Law. The headline, Anti-Muslim Extremist Video Calls for Counter-Narrative by Mainstream Americans. In other words, the audience needs to speak. Here's the story from September 20th, 2012. Many Americans would agree that a video portraying a religion's most revered prophet as a pedophile, sexual deviant, and ruthless criminal shocks the conscience. That it was created with the express intent to malign a faith followed by over a billion people worldwide only adds insult to injury. Thus, the video created by Basilina Kula, an ex-felon convicted of fraud, and Stephen Klein, founder of Courageous Christians United, that promotes anti-Mormon, anti-Catholic, and anti-Muslim literature predictably triggered anti-American protests across the Middle East. Media coverage of the protests short-sightedly focuses on formalistic arguments defending unpopular speech. Instead, Americans should do what the First Amendment intended, offer a counter-narrative in the marketplace of ideas that showcases America's tolerance, pluralism, and rich diversity. Many Americans fail to appreciate that this inflammatory video is not viewed by Muslims abroad in a vacuum. Instead, it follows on the heels of a Quran burning by a radical Christian pastor in Florida, urination on Qurans by U.S. troops, opposition to mosque building across the United States, police surveillance of Muslim students and mosque goers across the East Coast, and offensive campaign rhetoric accusing American Muslims in mass of disloyalty all of which contradict America's proclaimed values of religious freedom, equal protection, and respect for diversity. Thus, Muslims abroad do not view the American-made hate film as merely an expressive act by a lone actor protected by the First Amendment. Rather, it is part of a broader American assault on the Islamic faith wherein Muslims are expected to take it on the chin and smile. There's more to the article. It's on the Huffington Post. Sahar Aziz is the author. I will let that stand as a backdrop for the controversy over the film, quote unquote, film called Innocence of Muslims and just leave out for now some of the other controversies. Again, as I alluded to earlier, that this film was made under extremely dubious circumstances where some of the actors were not even informed of the role that they were playing. And now their image is being used to spread hate across the world under the auspices of a role that they allegedly, or you would assume they knew they were playing when they weren't. It's another act of fraud by filmmakers who have in many cases been accused of, well, a great deal of dishonesty before. And again, I would make the argument that the authorial intent here, well, what could the authorial intent be? I suppose that if you were of enough of a right wing bent, if you had enough of a controversial point of view about other religious constructs that you might say, well, we're telling the truth. We're getting the word out there. We're expressing a point of view. Okay. It's a little bit ugly. Okay. We're using a little bit of language. You know, we're, we're, we're being inflammatory, but we're just trying to quote unquote, tell the truth. So to help my Christian friends understand the perspective in the Muslim world. First off, I think uh, Aziz has done a good job in this article of explaining kind of why there's not that much understanding, why people can't, from around the world, people don't look at the U.S. First Amendment as some oasis in the desert, as we, I think, as Americans tend to do, because it's being used for political ends. I mean, the whole question of freedom of religion falls on its face if presidential candidates like michelle bachman can make an argument that freedom of religion only applies to christians just what exactly do we mean by freedom anyway so to help put christians in the right mindset to help make this make sense i want to play something for you and i do so with a warning that this is going to be the single most explicit episode of inappropriate conversations that is aired to date I realize I've made the same statement within the last 10 episodes on an episode that frankly didn't have a lot of profanity in it. It was just, you know, dealing with very, very sexual ideas. But in this case, it's because of profanity and it's because of incendiary and offensive ideas. So much so that I'm going to give a warning when this thing starts. And of course, the explicit tag will be on the show. I, I know that already. So if you find any of the following things offensive, I'm going to ask you to give me one minute and 15 seconds here. This is not just one minute and 15 seconds, like a spoiler alert, where maybe you don't want to ruin the context of, a, of something that's coming up and you don't want to you know, know the ending before it comes. I'm not asking you to skip this because it's going to spoil something for you. I'm asking you to strongly consider skipping this because these are words you do not need to hear. This is music, literally, that you don't have any business hearing. So if you're offended by anti-Christian points of view, if you're offended by willful and intentional blasphemy of the most rank sort, if you object to um, homosexuality in general, or on the other side of the political spectrum, if you don't have any problem with homosexuality but do not like words like faggot, if you don't like people using... Um, homosexuality and, and homosexual rape in an ugly context, if you'd rather not be a part of that kind of ugliness and violence, then maybe this is the point right now where you should tune out for about one minute and 15 seconds. If you jump in too soon and catch any sort of musical notes playing, you know you've started too soon, let it roll. You know who you are, my Christian friends, and trust me, you do not want to hear this. I realized there's something ironic about giving a big introductory speech about how you don't want to hear this. And I realized that because I do actually feel that way, that everything I said was true, that I've actually, in some ways, promoted a song that on more than one level offends me and that I would never encourage anyone to go out and buy. So I'm not going to tell you how you can find the whole CD that this is on. I'm not going to do anything more than tell you that the band is named The Feeders and they're from Arizona and they're a punk rock group. That must go back to the early 80s because I remember hearing this song in 1983, maybe even 82. So it's got a fairly long shelf life to it. It's got a long track record, for want of a better word. Now, why in the world do I, as a devout Christian who rejects all of the ideas in this song, there's nothing about the concept of we got a lot of nails, we'll do this to you again, that I would in any way want to endorse. So why do I have the song? Well, the main reason I have the song is that back around the time that I was in you know, college, maybe late high school, early college, I picked up this album. I picked up the album because it had a Dead Kennedys track on it. And my choice was to buy the Dead Kennedys album, In God We Trust Incorporated, or this sampler LP called Let Them Eat Jelly Beans. Picture of Ronald Reagan on the front, quotation intentionally making reference to Marie Antoinette, and calling, you know, really musically calling for a revolution with artists like Christian Lunch and B People, Jesus X, and Flipper. But the main reason I picked it up was because I felt I was going to be in better shape from not hearing a whole lot of nonsense I didn't want to hear, a lot of anti-religious diatribe. I was better off with this LP, with only the one Dead Kennedys song on it, Nazi Punk's Fuck Off being the song, than I would have been by picking up the In God We Trust Incorporated album with song titles like Moral Majority and Religious Vomit. Turns out I was probably very wrong here, because not only did I get, you know, uh, you know more than I bargained for in terms of, on the, on the plus side, um, the first time I ever heard a song by Flipper was on this album. And I'm, you know, uh, have a tremendous amount of esteem for the band Flipper. I strongly believe that if it weren't for that San Francisco band, we might not have had the grunge movement, or we certainly wouldn't have had the grunge movement that we did have. Something about the combination of Shonen Knife from Japan and their pop punk sensibility and Flipper with their dirge rock post-punk you know, noise kind of combined in the head of Kurt Cobain with a lot of other influences and, and gave us a lot of things that we would come to, to know later as Nirvana and grunge. So the good side, this one LP uh, gave me Flipper, which is great, but it also gave me this band Feeders. So what do you do? You've got an album, has a song on it you want, so you've got the song. To get rid of the album means you get rid of the song. It also has you know songs I really enjoyed by other artists. So it was not that you know the album was, generally speaking, bad and unpleasant and there was a couple of good tracks on it. It was more good than bad. And really the only song on the album that offended me to the point of saying I really would rather not hear this, I wish this wasn't part of this collection, was this Jesus song from that album. So here I am with this thing in my possession. So what do you do? Well, one of the things that I would do was use the album on more than one occasion to deal with the persistent, and in my opinion, aggressive and perhaps even offensive behavior of certain groups that I would describe as quasi Christian cults. I think we've all probably had the experience of having Jehovah's witnesses knock at your door or Mormon missionary groups knocking at your door and There's something that can happen to you in early college, especially when you're in a dormitory apartment complex kind of setting where you open that door and let these folks in. Sometimes you let them in, you share your faith, which is my plan. You decide that there's an impasse, you agree to disagree and they leave. Sometimes they don't leave. Sometimes they're convinced that if they just linger around long enough, you'll at least accept their literature or if not join them for a meeting at the kingdom hall or at the LDS church. And again, on a couple of different occasions, my method of getting these people to leave because they tend to be very charismatic, but also very thin skinned, not capable of handling a lot of pushback. And that's part of the reason that the conversations would quickly devolve into, you know, me speaking, them not listening. And to be honest with you, them speaking, me not listening either, because they were too thin skinned to accept a completely different worldview. The notion, for example, that time is less real than my relationship with God. The idea that 144,000 is never meant in the Bible to be a literal number, and the, you know, the author of Revelation tells us directly. He's talking about 12 times 12 times 1,000. But you know, we're dealing with people who can't do the math, who frankly can't read and interpret Scripture. And if they won't leave your living room or your dormitory room, what do you do? Well, I tell you what I do. I go over to the turntable, let them know that – I'm done talking, that they can leave whenever they want, and that I'm going to put on some music. And the music that I put on is Jesus entering from the rear by feeders. And without exception, it clears the room. Do you love Star Trek? How about a good, scary movie? Do sexy warrior princesses haunt your dreams? Then you'll love Starbase 66, the international Star Trek horror and fantasy podcast. Join Rick, Karen, and Kennedy each week as they discuss your favorite and not-so-favorite movies and TV shows, only on the Simply Syndicated 21st Century Media Network. So what is my intent by playing that song? Probably pretty transparent, but in case you missed it, I'll explain myself, and I'll explain myself clearly. There's probably a moment when the right kind of Christian, when a religious right, when a conservative person, when a, someone who's elderly and old in the faith here's a song like that. And their first response is those kids shouldn't be allowed to make that music. The first amendment doesn't protect their speech. That album should be banned. That album should be burned. And the person who sold it and the person who bought it and the person who played it, and especially the musicians should all be rounded up and thrown into prison. Just like the kind of reaction you'd get in Iran, in Libya, or in Egypt. In other words, my point is, when face to face with unmistakable blasphemy, with blasphemy that is willful and intentional and trying to incite a reaction, heaven help the Christian who is so full of pride and folly to think of himself or herself as being fundamentally different from those Muslims over there. We're not that different at all, especially if even for one moment or with from even hearing about the song and not listening to it, you decided that that kind of thing shouldn't be allowed. Well, what if that kind of thing was not just allowed, but it was allowed in public schools? What if that album made a trip with me to school one day so I could share it with a friend who took it home, made his own tape of it, to where now there's two people who have this album and therefore two people who have this song? At what point do you have to resist the urge to crack down yourself in spite of all the sanctimonious things that a lot of American conservatives have said, pointing a finger toward the Middle East about how important the First Amendment is and how they should just grow up. Now, my point of view? I don't think the attitude that the entire world needs to just grow up on these questions of religious tolerance is wrong at all. I'm just saying that the old adage about point one finger at somebody and three fingers in your hand are pointing right back at you applies here in spades. Maybe, just maybe, the intent of this article, written by this professor in Texas, is right. It's about time that Americans spoke up instead of being silent. It's about time that we replaced the bigoted, closed-minded, inciting, angry rhetoric on one side of the continuum of Christianity. And did our little part to be a light in the darkness, to outshine all those with evil intentions, and to shut it down. The quote that I offered from today, I'll share just to make sure that perhaps the final word, which came early in the conversation. But to me, I still think is the final word on this whole notion of on whether or not it was OK for Democrat left left sided critics to toss an accusation to the right about the similarities in the political philosophy between many Muslims and many you know, very conservative religious right type Christians. I asked who on the campaign trail categorically denounced those views from the religious right and their supporters about rounding up all the gays and putting them into a camp. The answer I got was, no need, at some point those views are loony enough that politicians don't even make note of them. Really? I disagree. Evidence suggests that Jesus disagrees too. This was a get-behind-me-Satan moment for one group of Christians to speak to another group of Christians there is sin in the silence. If we as American Christians remain silent about a movie made under fraudulent circumstances, created and delivered with the intent of creating violence, perhaps death, perhaps even more, then there will be a great deal of sin and our silence on this matter as well. Authorial intent does not protect you as an artist Especially if we can you know, get underneath it and say, this really isn't about your character development, it's not about your plot, it's not about your lighting, it's not about your editing. It's about what did you want this movie to do when it landed in the marketplace? Now, I've supported filmmakers before who have made movies that were designed to create social unrest, that were designed to, you know, perhaps even overthrow the government or challenge the powers that be. I would suggest, though, that Franco's Spain probably needed that kind of challenge, and needed to be overthrown. And maybe you could make an argument that you know, could could a video like this inspire the resistance movement in some of these Middle Eastern countries to overthrow the theocracies in which they live? No, seems much more designed to back up the theocratic authority. In fact, it seems made by people who actually believe greatly in theocratic authority. So the time to speak has come. The time to speak challenging words, to call a hack a hack, to distance ourselves from the material, but more importantly, to do things the way Jesus said to do them, to interact with people, to provide discourse, to go into the places where the religious authorities of our day, the Pharisees of our time would tell us not to go, to break bread literally with people in hopes that maybe in some future point in time, we'll have the opportunity to break bread with them metaphorically. I want to quote the Bible for just a moment in this conversation, just to bring in a perspective, and I'm going to quote First Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 13. For the sake of the Lord, submit yourselves to every human authority, to the emperor, who is the supreme authority, and to the governors, who have been appointed by him to punish the evildoers and praise those who do good. For God wants you to silence the ignorant talk of foolish people by the good things you do. Live as free people. Do not, however, use your freedom to cover up any evil, but live as God's slaves. Respect everyone, love other believers, honor God, and respect the emperor. That is First Peter chapter 2, verses 13-17. through 17. I would put forth that failing to criticize this video, failing to follow through on potential criminal charges for the ethical violations of misleading actors and perhaps even you know, um, engaging in criminal acts when it comes to the you know, distribution or the copyright involved in the film, that failing to follow up on those things would be a, a very good example of using your freedom to cover up an evil. A lie has been told here, or even if a truth has been told, a truth has been told in a most unholy, absolutely unchristian way. And we've got to say and do something about it. And if the filmmakers have the temerity to suggest that they should be above reproach because they are the artist here and they have a right to say whatever they want, it may be time that we remind them that we as the audience have the final say. I'm going to use the Different Drummer segment today as a case in point and refer to classical violinist Maxim Vengarov. Born in Russia in 1974, Vengarov is a violinist, violist, and conductor, born in the Soviet Union, who has since traveled the world, performing music for large audiences and also in a classroom setting. If you go look online right now, it appears to me that the most recent gig that he has is as the Menuhin Professor of Music for the Royal Academy of Music in London. It is in this role that he started, I believe, in February or March of this year that he'll be interacting directly with students. This is, to me, a very good thing. There are two things about Vengarov that I would like to cite as a reason why he should be sought out, and it's worth looking him up. There are a couple of different music documentaries about Vengarov that are out there, and in those, it shows him preparing for concerts delivering concerts, doing recitals, interacting with students. And one of the things that jumps out at you is that there's a great deal of joy in this man's work that for him, the music is going to be personal. It's always going to be personal and it is intended to be shared. So even in a one hour, sort of a PBS style documentary, there's a great deal that comes out of it. The reason I chanced across Wenger in the first place is that I'm a very big fan of the Polonaise recordings by Heinrich Vaniowski and Vangerov is among the very best at playing these particular violin show pieces. If you've never heard Polonaise in D minor, for example, I've got a clip up on the Facebook page for inappropriate conversations where you can see music video of him performing live in concert, this particular work. And to my way of thinking, even not seeing the video, even just listening to the music, it is obvious even to the most untrained ear in classical music that this is just about as challenging a piece as you're going to find. It's a solo work, primarily and released often played just by piano and violin. And the intricacy involved, the variety of play, is consistent with Viniowski as a composer being somebody who sought ways to challenge whoever's going to play his music to really bring their all. So Vingrov, performing perhaps my personal favorite piece of classical music or at least violin classical music delivers on that front. But the other thing, one of the documentaries I've seen, and I don't know its name to cite it. There is a scene where Vingrov is talking to a group of students about how important it is for them to put themselves into the work. And in the example that he was citing, he said, you know, he has no way of knowing whether the composer, you know, Rachmaninoff, Shostakovich, whoever he was referring to at the time intended for the work to be about somebody running up a hill or you know, evading some sort of monster. But as he's playing this, you know, aggressively allegro piece of music with a lot of you know pizzicato elements to it, he's relating his mind, saying, as I'm playing the notes and trying to play them perfectly and precisely, I am also thinking about this chase scene, this this running away, this narrative that he has in his head, because he, as the violinist, as the performer has the right to put any construct he wants to around the instrumental music that he's performing. He is, in essence, denying the composer any authorial intent that that composer may have around the work. So I've mentioned before my esteem for the challenging nature of the music written by Vaniovsky. But when I hear the central segment of Polonaise in D minor, I think of Young Frankenstein. It reminds me of the violin work that is used for comic effects in that film. And I don't care as a listener whether Viniovsky would find that offensive. I don't care as a listener whether Maxim Vengerov is thinking of a completely different thing while he's playing this incredibly beautiful, mournful, haunting melody that is you know bookended on both sides by a frenetic and intricate pace of music. It doesn't matter. I get to think what I want. I'm the audience. And At the end of the day, I'm pretty sure that Vengerov is with me 100% because it's consistent with what he told a classroom full of students in that video, that anything we do to put shackles on somebody's experience of art, to say, you're not allowed to view this allegorically, I'm afraid that's a mistake. Art needs to be approached and appreciated by each individual consumer, bringing to it their experience So that that moment is real between the two of them. And most of the time you'd find that if it's truly great art over the life of that consumer, as they grow and pick up new life experiences and see things through different ways, they will come back to the exact same piece of art and experience that piece of art in different ways. It doesn't necessarily mean that the first time was wrong and that this time is right, because this time might be supplanted by a future time with yet another different experience of art. And there's absolutely nothing unholy about that situation because most Christians will refer to their experience of the Bible in exactly the same way. Authorial intent is about the relationship between the author and their characters and the work and the reader. And everything about that has validity, unless what we mean by art simply doesn't apply. I intend to give the last word today to Dr. Harrison Solo, and I want to do so by veering off topic ever so slightly. My first encounter with Solo was on an interview with Starbase 66. Uh, It was a back-to-back sort of thing where uh, in one episode they spoke to Herb Solo, who played such a pivotal role as essentially the showrunner of Star Trek, the original series. We think of Gene Roddenberry as being the producer of that show, but Herb Solo had a huge role. Now, if you compare it to the modern Doctor Who, a Stephen Moffat-type role in how the actual series unfolded, in a subsequent week, I believe, Harrison Solo appeared on the show as well, and she said something that really has spoken to one of the issues that I brought up several times here in Inappropriate Conversations, that being the relationship between sexes, where friendship to me is not something that has to be gender-segregated. It's not, it's a guy and guy thing versus a girl and girl thing. The math on that never made sense to me, even as a very little kid. And it doesn't make sense to me now, especially when you put in some of the other issues related to gender politics and start asking questions about, well, what is the opposite sex? What is the opposite sex to a homosexual person, for example? It just doesn't work. No, to me, friendships can be formed from any gender and really for any reason. Let me quote Solo, though, with... You know, just a quick note. In fact, I put this note out on one of the previous Inappropriate Conversations episodes, so I'll just read it here, including the quotation of her work. I forgot something I really wanted to include, so here it is. One major challenge in dealing with the worldly expectations that any love between men and women must be sexual. I'm sure most men have dealt with the disappointment of finding out that you are just a friend to a romantic interest, i found it just as troubling when a friendship is destroyed by more than a friend proclamations. The other issue, which I've hinted at, is the problem of being misunderstood and managing the much larger rejection of, I don't want to be your friend. I say it is larger compared to, say, we're just not going to hook up. Because we're not going to hook up is a physical, temporal thing. I'm not interested in being your friend. Well, it just seems bigger to me. Nowhere have I heard this issue of expectations and assumptions described better than on the podcast Starbase 66 and their interview with Harrison Solo. She describes coming out of the convent during the sexual revolution and learning through trial and error that opportunities to be honest and caring to men work very, very differently when you are a nun. Quoting Solo, Everyone said, well, this is a nun, and so she's being friendly and kind, and there's no ulterior motive and no sexual overtone. But as soon as I left, and I was the same person and behaved the same way, it was quite a different story. You just can't behave in as loving or open a manner without a habit as you can with one. Harrison Solo, November sixteenth, two 2009 I heartily recommend Starbase 66 as a show, and that particular episode, of course, and the irony that solo brings out of it when she's talking about what we might think of as being inside the convent as a nun, wearing the habit being something that would be constricting and constraining. But in this one particular aspect, in this notion of intersexual friendship or intersexual interaction, in some ways being a nun was much more freeing, far less constraining than trying to interact in the real world with all of the gender-based assumptions that we really still have to this very day. So my respect for Harrison Solo built on that very strong foundation. And I wanted to give her the last word on this concept of authorial intent because she has a very different perspective. She would perhaps, if you uh, looked at it as a scale, be far closer to the Orson Welles side of things than I am. And truthfully, I think probably landing more on the Akira Kurosawa side of things. Here's a quote from a post that she put up on redroom.com. Called personal correspondence. I had a very long and in the end tedious argument once with a fellow professor from Yale regarding meaning. He purports that the reader is the judge or interpreter of meaning. I, the mere author poet. When giving lectures or signing books, readers, fans have sometimes told me what I meant to convey in a certain passage, and it always irritates me. I know what I meant when I wrote it. I don't mind if people tell me what they thought of when they read it, or what it reminded them, or anything they thought or felt, or what it seems to say, but to tell me what I meant when I was writing seems colossal hotspot. But John says no, the writer often doesn't know what he or she writes. Solo goes on to say that she doesn't buy that argument, but raises the question of whether or not her point of view is too harsh, perhaps too deeply entrenched. I'm sitting here at the end of this conversation with this point of view in front of me saying, you know what, it's really somewhere in the middle. Anytime someone says the reader is the final judge or interpreter of meaning and that the, you know, the author is just, well, the author, I think that that's completely unfair. To me, though, the author is one interpreter or judge of meaning. And I don't know that that one person's interpretation, authorship notwithstanding, trumps the point of view of everybody else. The difference, of course, is that I don't get to say what Steven Spielberg really meant in that one scene, whether the movie be as weighty as Schindler's List or as relatively frivolous as an Indiana Jones film. I don't get to make a claim about his point of view. But unlike Orson Welles, he doesn't get to make a claim about my point of view either. Hey there, Atomic Tribute War fans. This is Jason with a quick blast. What comic strip character is known as Carl Alfred in Sweden and Iron Arm in Italy? If you guessed Popeye, you guessed correctly. What pungent herb does California farmer Chester Aaron grow 87 varieties of, including Creole Red, Spanish Roja, and Asian Tempest? It's not the Marijuana, it is garlic. And who was caught stealing 42 times in 1982 to break Ty Cobb's single season record by four? That was Ricky Henderson. Tune in every week to the Atomic Trivia War, a new podcast on Simply Syndicated. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. And show notes are enabled at the website, www.inappropriateconversations.org. Inappropriate Conversations is also on Stitcher. Stitcher is an award-winning provider of news talk radio for your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. Thanks for listening.